unique, unique message because it is totally, absolutely, radically different than what you and I could have, would have, and everything that we think that we would have done, God did differently. So let's get ready. We always do this here, beginning North Lake service, because we want the Word of God to be in our hearts. We don't want it just to be in our heads. We want it to change the very fabric of our hearts and lives. This book is my all-sufficient guide for faith and conduct. Convinced living water changes everything, one life at a time. Hallelujah. I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew as we talk about the entry. Just turn to the book of Matthew, get ready. We're going to be looking at a particular passage of Scripture that has actually in the Gospels four places that mention the triumphal entry of Jesus as he enters in Jerusalem. This is Passover week. It's the beginning of basically where Jesus is setting into course the fact that he is getting ready to accomplish the mission that God gave him. And so it's all culminating here. And so the, the entry into Jerusalem becomes absolutely pivotal and pinnacle. And so it is mentioned not just in Matthew, and that's where we're going to be looking, Matthew 21, 1 through 5. So you can turn there, Matthew 21, 1 through 5. But we are also going to be looking at the book of Mark. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to be, I just want you to write these down because in these parallel passages, I'm going to mention several things that occur because each one of the writers of the gospel, just like when we eyewitness something, give a little bit of a different part of the story than the other. We're going to see that that happened here. So Mark 11 and then Luke 19 and John 12. So I'll just give you a minute to write those down because in those parallel passages, you'll want to read through those. We won't read all of those in the entirety. We're going to be looking at Matthew 21. 1 through 11, but I will be referencing some things that happened in these other places and parts of Scripture that you're going to want to know about. So let's look at Matthew chapter 21, and let's start at verse number 1. Matthew 21, starting at verse number 1 and reading through verse number 11. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, 
gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him And those who followed after him, after, were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitude were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen. Amen. What an incredible, incredible, incredible passage of Scripture. In this passage of Scripture, we all have heard and know, if you, if you don't know, the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus in itself is something that we would have never conceived because it came in such a different way than when we, that what we would have done. And Jesus very clearly, when he came into this world, had a purpose on his mind, and it was to do the will of his Father. Well, here, as he enters into Jerusalem, we find the same thing happening. There were times throughout Jesus' ministry that people came to him and wanted Jesus to do what they thought was right. There were times when they thought that he should not go here or they should thought that he should go here or they thought that he ought to be quicker getting to where he was going. There was all kinds of things, even to the point where they said, Jesus, you're not, you're not exalting yourself to your kingdom fast enough. We're going to make you king. And it says in John that they actually took him and, and intended by force to make Jesus king. And Jesus slipped out from where they were and was gone because Jesus was not there to do the will of man. Jesus was there to do the will of his father. He was there with God's intention in mind. He was there saying, God, you have sent me with a purpose and I will not be turned from that purpose. Here we see the same thing. If it would be you and I, let's face it, we would not have made the triumphal entry into Jerusalem this boring. (laughs) Am I right? With all that we think of, with all that we see in, in the movies, I mean, we think of when that star makes the entrance how, how so much is put into the entrance of that person entering in. And yet Jesus is about to do something that will absolutely change and alter the course of history forever. And yet he came in totally different than what we would have done. We would have come in with pomp. 
we would have come in with circumstance. We would have come in with an entourage talking about the great things we were going to be doing, how wonderful it was going to be, how, how everything was going to be different, how you were going to go in there and you were going to change everything. That's not how Jesus came. Now, all of those things were about to take place that Jesus was going to do. But guess what? Not one of them happened the way that the people thought that it was going to happen. They all had their preconceived ideas of what was going to take place. They all thought Jesus ought to do this, he ought to do that. He, this ought to be his first priority. Well, no, that ought to be his first priority. Man, the ruckus that was happening. But Jesus said, you know what? I'm not getting caught up in any of that because I know what my purpose is. I know my purpose is to glorify my Father. And therefore, that's what I'm going to be doing. And so the first thing we need to understand as we have read the triumphal entry, and again, I encourage you to read it, and I want to point out to you some of the other things that happened in the Gospels before we move forward. In the book of John, uh, in John's uh, parallel passage, 12, 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, John points out a little different perspective about how when Jesus went through the triumphal entry, how Lazarus was there and how his family was there and how he was going testifying of the miracles that Jesus had done. So that was taking place. And the other gospels don't mention that. Well, uh, and, and by the way, during the, in that same uh, parallel passage, the Pharisees were absolutely livid in fact, they say, look, the whole world has gone after him. <laughs> oh, let it be, Jesus. <laughs> and so they were, they were upset about this. In Matthew, it talks about that he came riding on a beast of burden. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, okay? In Luke, Luke talks about the fact, Luke 19, verses 29 through 38, that's the parallel passage in Luke, and Luke talks about the Pharisees making a comment to Jesus to, to uh, quiet the people down and make them shut up from crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus responds by saying, I tell you the truth, if they don't say it, the rocks will cry out because he is exactly who they say he was. And then in Mark, Mark's gospel, chapter 11, 11, or 1 through 11, Mark 11, 1 through 11, Mark is the one that emphasizes the fact that through all of what was happening, there wasn't any of them that recognized really who Jesus was. What a tragedy the king of the universe. Yes, the son of God, whom the scripture declares without him nothing in the world was made that has been made. It was his hand. It was the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead that moved and created together. 
And very clearly it says that without him, nothing would have been made. The scripture goes on to say that Jesus came unto his own, and his own didn't even recognize him. And Mark's gospel points out that fact. How tragic is that? And I guess I pause there and say, don't let an opportunity slip that you could walk out of this place today and not have fully recognized who Jesus really is. So as we look at this, the first thing then I want to say is this. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9 declares, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are from the earth are my thoughts than your thoughts and your ways than my ways. God was saying, when you think that it ought to be done this way, I am going to show you that I've got a different way. And I tell you, we've got to understand that if we ourselves have such an easy time knowing the difference between being able to instruct one of our children from being uh, at the uh, earliest stage of infancy all the way up through toddler, through uh, uh, intermediate age and through teens and then adulthood, and we see and can know and look out and see so much more, do you understand the immense amount of great expanse more when God sees us. And yet we armchair quarterback God all the time. We sit and we say, God, you should have done this. It would have been better that way. It would have been better this way. And we never understand the plan of God. We never understand that Jesus clearly said he's a father who has your interest in mind. So when we don't understand, we have to go back to trusting the father's heart, just like Jesus taught us, just like Jesus set the example to do. Just as Jesus did, so we ought to as well. Now, there are several things that I want us to look at as we have read Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And there are these three things. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, the people immediately saw the physical. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, people immediately saw the temporal and the now. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the people saw that we were going to have a strong king that was going to get rid of the Romans. And not one of those perceptions is what Jesus was even getting close to do. How many times, how many times do you think in our lives or in the world that people must still question God? 
God, you know, if it would have been just this way, it would have been absolutely perfect. And God says, as he said back then, you really don't understand what's happening. But when it all is revealed to you, you will see it crystal clear. The disciples at this time were in a point where Jesus had talked to his disciples for months about his death. He had talked to them for months about what he was getting ready to do and how he had to suffer. And in the scripture it says they were dull of understanding. They couldn't grasp it. That only after the fact did it become crystal clear to them. May I tell you, that Jesus is going to do exactly everything he said he's going to do. When he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, understand he's doing it. When he says there's coming a time when the Father in heaven will say, it's time, go get your bride, that he's going to come. And not a on this earth will keep him from coming and when he says after he takes his people home that he is going to come physically again and he will set his feet on the mount of olives and it will split in two understand it will happen just as he said it will Jesus is not slack concerning his promise But when it happens, we will see it crystal clear. The disciples didn't understand. They saw things from their perspective. They were looking for a Savior, but they were looking for a Savior now. They were looking for a Savior from physical things. They were looking for a Savior from the Roman oppression. They were looking for a Savior of everything except what God was coming to do. So let's talk about that. When we talk about we seeing the physical, I think of John chapter 6, verse number 63, where Jesus says to the people, trying to explain to them about how that they were going to have to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And of course, they weren't understanding Jesus was talking about the fact that he was going to the cross and that Everyone was going to have to come through him to get to God. Now I will say it again. I know that everything within everybody that doesn't believe in this will tell you how politically incorrect that statement is. I'm telling you it's biblically correct. There is no way to God without Jesus. Jesus said, there's no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Acts 4, 12. That is the essential part of the gospel. The fact is Jesus then makes these words. The spirit alone gives life. The human effort accomplishes nothing. 
they were looking for something that they could grab on in this physical realm. And I tell you, everything in this physical realm is passing away. And even to the point where Jesus says that this old earth, when Jesus finally comes, is going to be reserved for fire and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that he's going to create. You look around and see it, and I know, please hear me, we're to be good stewards of what God's given us. So we ought to be good stewards of the resources God has put in our hands. But please understand this worship of our creation and this making trees and animals and everything else God's is not from the Lord. Because this earth is passing away. This earth is not going to make it for eternity. And so human effort, no matter how much we want to hold on to the physical, it's slipping away. Do you know from the moment that a child is born, the process of the death cycle begins? You say, Pastor, that's morbid. No, I'm, I'm trying to tell you that Jesus, Jesus himself says, do not be concerned about anyone who can harm the physical body. And after that, can't do anything. He says, I will tell you the one that ought to concern you, the one that after your physical body perishes, has then the right, because he's righteous and holy, to decide whether you will be in heaven and hell for eternity. So that's not politically correct either, but it is biblically correct. That's what we need to understand, that we're trying to hold on to this physical world, but this physical world is passing away. Now, I am not a, a, a fatalist. Understand, God's given us this life. We're to use it, but we use it for the glory of God with a different perspective how we live. Because the Bible says in James, our life is but a vapor, and then it's gone. Even ones, my grandmother lived to 100 years old. I still think of that and think, wow. But you know what? It's such a short moment. It's a moment in time and it's gone. But you know what? There's coming a day. I don't know where he, There's coming a day, Mom, where we're going to see the Lord face to face and Grandma's going to be there. <laughs> Hallelujah! There's coming a day where we're going to be there and Kermit's going to be there. <laughs> Hallelujah! For those of you who don't know, Kermit Swenson went to be with Jesus. And I can think of no greater thing than the fact that he had his triumphal entry into the presence of the Lord on this day. <laughs> Hallelujah! So we look at the things from a physical point. God looks at it from a spiritual standpoint. See, he says the spirit is where it's at. We try to hold on to the physical. The spiritual is where it's at. Then the next thing, the, the now, the immediate, the temporal, we do our best to try to hold on that which is temporary. But the Bible says 
not to fix our eyes on what is seen, but to fix our eyes on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, if you're having a hard time grasping that, as I do sometimes with my finite mind, because, again, in a practical way, all we know is our five senses, isn't it? That's all we have in this life. What we can feel, what we can touch, what we can uh, taste, what we can uh, smell, what we can grab a hold of, okay? But, but the Word of God makes it clear all of those things are temporary. And if we have a hard time understanding the eternal, understand that it, the Scripture says in, in John chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 1 that God spoke the world into existence out of nothing. Hebrews 11 also talks about it. He spoke the world into existence. He created what is seen out of nothing. So it shouldn't surprise us that there's more to the unseen than there is to what we see. Amen? So it's just a passing thing. So when, when Jesus came in in the triumphal entry, they saw the temporary. They saw the fact, well, now, Jesus, now's the time. Have you ever lived your life in that way? I have even as a believer. And, and even to my shame at points where I think, God, I ought to be past this by now. I will have moments where I just, in my in my wanting God to do something, think, Jesus, if just now you could do it. And Jesus does not have my temporary view. What view does Jesus come with when he entered into the triumphal entry? Eternal. Jesus had not the temporal, he had the eternal That's why everything was different. They wanted him to do something now. Boy, they were ready. And Jesus says, no, guys, I'm doing something so far beyond that that you don't understand this, but this is exactly what you need. Amen? Amen. By the way, that scripture verse, if you can't see it, I know it's a little bit, is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse number 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 18 talks about that we uh, fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. I love this picture because this is a good perspective to have, to get my eyes, first of all, off myself, second of all, off of what the world has and get it on God, (laughs) where it belongs. Amen? Amen? And the last thing, they came. When Jesus was there, they had their mind set on a king riding a white horse with an entourage where he would put the Romans and everything that was wrong in its place. And in fact... He was coming to be their savior, but although they wanted him to save them from the Romans, God came humble and gently, but in meekness 
Now you say, well, pastor, why are you emphasizing that? Because I want to give a definition for you of the term meekness. It's not a term we use a lot in the English language anymore, really. But the term means strength and power under control. Jesus was the Son of God. The Scripture makes it clear that He was with God from the beginning. From, they have no beginning. Understand that. When He says in the Bible, I am He, <laughs> when He says that before Abraham was born, I am. Okay? He was with God. But understand also that in that, Jesus was fully man. <laughs> And so when they were wanting him to come and save him from the, the, the Romans, he did not have that on his mind. What did he have on his mind? Again, he had God's will. What was God's will? To absolutely, totally destroy the one thing that was going to destroy us, sin, Jesus came into that triumphal entry and in meekness he said, I will do what the Father has asked me to do. Because they don't understand. They really don't understand what I'm getting ready to do. They really don't understand that the enemy of their soul, sin and Satan, is about to have a rude awakening. <laughs> they really don't understand, but I in, in meekness am going to fulfill that which God has called me to do. And I love, 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 love these shirts that have Jesus bearing the weight of the sin of the world. And that's what it says Understand, in 2 Corinthians, write this down, 5.21, it says God laid the sin of the world on him. And I love it, the shirts where it says, bench this. You think you can bench a lot of weight? Bench what Jesus benched. The sins of the world were on him. Now let's go back. Let's look at what it says. It says, your king comes gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Do you know that a donkey is known for just being able to literally saddle whatever you can put on it? And literally, they will just Get it on there and they will make it happen. Do you know that Jesus was our burden bearer? And do you also know that he rode on a foal, which means that he was never ridden before? There was only one person that could have done this. There was only one person that rode that foal, it was Jesus. And there was only one person that could have removed your and my sin, and it was Jesus. There was no one else that could have done it. 
No one else that could have had the strength to bench it. Jesus, in meekness, bore your and my and the sins of the world on his shoulders. Incredible. Incredible. When the scripture says his ways are not our ways, they're so much greater. See, when we read that, we think, well, his ways are not our ways. And in our finite minds, we immediately begin to think how God is going to cheat us out of something. Isn't it right in our carnal minds? Well, God's probably not going to do. And we don't even understand that when he says his way is not our way, he's got something so much better that you can't comprehend. You may not be able to see it right now. You may not be able to fully grasp it. But it is true because that is the character of God. That's the character of your father. That's why Jesus, even though he was fully human and could have gotten caught up in all of the reasons to make himself king and declare that he was holy and come on a white horse, he said, no, I'm here to do so much more. I'm here to do something they can't even comprehend. Aren't you glad that when Jesus rode in, aren't you glad it was on a donkey? Aren't you glad that he yielded his life to the Father? Aren't you glad that he came not doing his own will, but the will of God? And because of it today, we are alive in Christ. Hallelujah. Praise his name. Thank the Lord for what he has done. He rode in triumphantly, not in what we thought, but in the will of God. So as we get ready to close up the service, I want to ask you, as you look at Jesus making an entry into your life. Jesus physically, when he was on the earth, made the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's a, that was a great event. But I tell you, the greatest event is when Jesus makes the entry into your heart. <laughs> that is the miracle that only God can do. And that entry into your heart you need to understand three things. Number one, when Jesus comes and he comes to enter your heart, it's about him doing a spiritual thing. It's not something that is on the outside. It's something he does on the inside. We get all hung up on the external. The prophet Samuel got hung up on it. So it can happen to good, godly people. And he said, certainly, man, I see the king right here. Jesus says to him in, in Samuel 16, uh-uh, don't even consider him. Man looks on the outward appearance. I look at the things inside. Jesus, when he enters your heart, 
is not looking on the outside. He's looking on the inside. He wants to deal with your sin problem, not with the color of your skin, hair, anything else. It doesn't matter. Jesus loves human beings. Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for you and me and everyone who would call upon his name. Jesus came to do something spiritual. Jesus came to do something eternal. And if you've invited Jesus into your heart and have been frustrated because Jesus hasn't done something for a moment that you think should have happened, understand, the only thing that that means is that you're controlling God. And if you control God, how weak is your God? If you are going to tell God and control God, how weak is that God? I tell you, he is God Almighty. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He does as he pleases. He is God. And so God is looking at it from an eternal perspective. Understand, it's not about the moment, it's about the eternal. Then the third thing you need to understand, he came to be a savior, not to save you out of your situation, but to save you out of your sin. The Israelites wanted their situation to change. Jesus said, I'm going to save you from what you really need, your sin. Because you know what? A lot of times, if I let God take care of my sin, my situation gets better naturally. Because <laughs> I stop making the bed. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? When there's real life change, changes come. That's why it says, he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Hallelujah. Second Corinthians 5, 17. The new has come. A new creation. He came to save you from your sin. When you open up your heart and let the Savior come into the entry of your heart this year, I hope you will allow him to be a Savior that is spiritual, eternal, and is a true savior of your sin. Bow your head with me this morning.